We are uh, now in our third week of the book of Hebrews. We're in a new series uh, called uh, Jesus is Greater, and this week we are in chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, feel free to turn or scroll to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 13. So I will read these for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man? You are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Uh, the other day, uh, my daughter, who's now 18 months old, did something which was at the same time uh, adorable and terrifying. Uh, a little backstory here. Every morning I wake up, I'm really congested. And I'm sorry, this is a very gross way to start a sermon, but I'm really congested and I have to blow my nose multiple times just to, you know, get the, the, the breathing operational here. So, and I've been to see like, you know, several doctors and I'm not sure why this is for over a decade. I mean, every single morning of my life. So uh, I think I just might be allergic to getting out of bed but I haven't had that confirmed medically. But anyway, I blow my nose and uh, Eloise is often up with me. And because I've done this for over a decade, I'm very methodical in my, my process. And the other day we had left a, a box of tissues on the floor. And that was a rookie mistake because if you do that and they get to it, you'll play 52 tissue pickup, you know. So we saw her go for the tissue box and we stopped for some reason, maybe it was the spirit, and we watched what she did. And it was, she's never done this before, okay. And uh, she's never touched a tissue before, like properly. And she pulls it out of the box and she folds it. She holds it up to her little nose and uh, she blows. Uh, she knows not what, and she, not, she knows not why she is blowing, but she blows her little heart out. And uh, it was adorable, obviously, and I'm glad we documented the moment. Uh, but the terrifying bit is I realized I am under constant surveillance in my own house. It's very Orwellian, like all the time I'm being watched. It's like the, the slug monster Roz in Monsters, Inc., who says, I'm watching you, Mike Wazowski, always watching, 
always. And so this is what little kids do, right? They're, they're masters at paying close attention uh, to you. As they become teenagers, they lose their natural ability. But for, for this brief window, right, they're able to focus. And uh, this is what the text is telling us to do. It's really the main, the main point of the text is the first sentence. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So if there were ever one sermon that you should, you know, probably not sleep through, it is this one, right? Pay much closer uh, attention. However, now that I have two under two, I'm far more sympathetic to our weaknesses. And if you need a nap, as I said in first service, I'll say it here, the Lord be with you and keep you, and I'll see you in 30 minutes. But if you're going to stay awake, and that is my recommendation, um, we will see what, what happens when we pay close attention to the text. And I think we'll see three things, three points real quick. The message is a miracle. The danger is drifting and the pioneer is pursuing us. The message is a miracle. The danger is drifting and the pioneer uh, is pursuing us. So first, the message is a miracle. Uh, Why do I say that? Because the message is the very thing that we are called to pay close attention to. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The last uh, two weeks, we've seen sermons about angels, and uh, it's, it's been like kind of wild seeing how this early, these early Christians were very preoccupied with this, this idea of angels delivering the law. Uh, and what we see in our text this morning is a different message. In verse three, it says, there's such a great salvation. And then it says, it, the salvation, the message of that salvation was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness with signs and wonders and various miracles. So the first thing we see is that this message is a little bit different than the other message. In verse two, it says, that message was declared by angels. The law was mediated to Israel in the Old Testament through Moses and through a host of angels. But this message, it says, was declared at first by the Lord by God, by Jesus. And that's a big deal. And here's, here's why that's a big deal, okay? Imagine the most powerful person on the planet, okay? Think of like a U.S. president. Think of your favorite U.S. president. Not, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be a recent one because all of those are too dangerous to talk about. But, you know, th- think of at least one U.S. president you like. There's gotta be one, okay? And imagine this U.S. president is trying to send you a message which you would like to receive. And uh, imagine he says, this message is so important. I'm going to mail it directly to you. But, you know, I'm not gonna just send it through the UPS or whatever. I'm going to, I'm gonna send it by, uh, by agents, not angels, agents, secret service agents from the White House. And maybe it's not even one, maybe it's a myriad of, agent, of agents. Hundreds of them come knocking on your door and they hand you the letter. They say, this is a message from the president of the United States you would probably say that's an important message. I don't know how you could make a message more important, but there is one way. What if there was a second message and the president said, you know what? This message is so important. I don't want anyone's hands to touch it besides my own. I don't even wanna trust it with the secret service. I wanna go in person, in, in, in the flesh. I want to speak with you myself and tell you face to face. The president 
comes knocking on your door. See, this is, this is what the gospel is like, except it's not a puny president. It's the omnipotent God who created everything showing up in the flesh saying, I have a message so important that thousands of angels are not worthy to carry it. This is a message only worthy to be heard directly from the mouth of God. And if you understand that, then you'll see what the, the author of Hebrews is trying to say to us. It's a great message. And one of the reasons that Scott and I keep saying the, the author of Hebrews or the writer of Hebrews is we don't know who wrote the book, as Paul shared a couple, uh, as Scott shared a couple weeks ago, but some people have thought it was Paul, the apostle. That was a pretty common opinion, but nobody really thinks that anymore. And one of the main reasons is because the very next words in our text, it was declared at first by the Lord. And then it says in verse three, and it was attested to us by those who heard. It was attested to us by those who uh, who heard. So those who heard is almost definitely talking about the apostles or the disciples. It was declared at first by Jesus. And then, and then the writer says, it was attested to us by those who heard. And this is just not a way that Paul would ever speak. If you've read Galatians at all, <laughs> like, like Paul is an apostle. He doesn't get the message from apostles, but by a direct revelation of Jesus uh, himself. And so this is why we don't think Paul wrote this. But the reason I'm being technical at this point is because you and I have something in common with the Hebrews, with the Jewish Christians this letter is sent to. And that is, these Christians were at least second-generation Christians. And this means that they did not see Jesus with their own eyes. Their faith was dependent on a message delivered to them through apostles, through witnesses, through disciples. And we have that in common. So this message is wonderful, so wonderful that God himself, Jesus comes to send it to us. It's attested to us by apostles and disciples. Could it get any greater answer? Yes, look at verse four. While God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders and various miracles. So the Greek word for miracle is dunamis. It uh, sounds funny, and when you transliterate it, it looks like dynamite, and it means an act of power or a work of power. The, the word wonder uh, could, could be something that is uh, awe-inspiring or even scary. It could be fearful, something kind of uh, unsettling and, and dreadful. And the word sign, of course, is, is something that signifies something else. And all three of these words, signs, wonders, and miracles, are used to describe the ministry of Jesus in the gospels. So the writer of Hebrews is picking up on that. And he is saying that not only did Jesus come and deliver this message straight from the mouth of God, but God himself bore witness to it through the signs and wonders and miracles of Jesus. And what we see in our text, which I think is kind of neat, is we see sort of the purpose behind why Jesus was doing miracles. One of the functions of the miracles is that God bears witness through them. That is to say that the, the miracles authenticate the message that Jesus is bringing. This is an important point to see. This message is so important. God is using miracles for the purpose of authenticating, of verifying that it is his message. And there's a second thing that, that they do. They not only authenticate the message, but they illustrate the message. The miracles are given as, as sort of a, a illustration of what the purpose of the message is. 
the word uh, signs. It's interesting, in John's gospel, he never uses the word miracle. No miracles occur in the gospel of John, only signs. And that is because for John, he is trying to show us that Jesus does these seven signs. There's seven major signs in John's gospel. He's trying to show us that they're not just works of power, but they're trying to show you something about spiritual reality, about the message of the gospel. And that's why, so when Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John's gospel, he's showing us that only Christ can, can satisfy our spiritual hunger with his body. When Jesus walks on the water right after Passover, what he's showing them is that he's a new Moses. He's leading a better exodus for his people. When he heals the man who's blind, he shows us that he can give us true spiritual vision. And when he climactically raises Lazarus from the dead, it's his final sign in John's gospel. He's showing us he will raise our very bodies from death to everlasting life. The purpose of a sign is not necessarily itself, but it's to point to something. And so the miracles are also illustrating the gospel message. So here's the whole ball of wax. Miracles, okay, they authenticate the message. They illustrate the message. So the message is primary. The miracles magnify the message. They are in one sense only secondary to the message itself. And if you, if you look at the Bible and you look at the miracles that are done all the way from the Old Testament through the New Testament, you'll see something interesting. There are certain periods in the Bible where there are a lot of miracles, like at the time of Moses. And there are certain periods where there are not a lot of miracles, like the time of Esther. And, and what you find is that in these, these crests of miraculous activity, it's always accompanying God's revelation. When God is sending forth new revelation through prophets or apostles, or most importantly, through Jesus, there's always more miraculous activity. And this is important to see in the entire Bible up until till Jesus and in all of human history since Jesus, there have never been as many miracles or miracles of such an amazing quality as those that he did through Jesus. Something really special was happening in the miraculous ministry of Jesus. What was happening? The message. The message was being authenticated. The most important message, the great salvation that the the writer of Hebrews is telling us about. And so this leads to a natural question, which I hope you're thinking, which is this, do miracles still happen today? Or maybe a better question is, should miracles still happen today? And should we as a church be seeking after miracles? Or another question might be, if miracles aren't happening, is something wrong with us, right? Like, because they're happening a lot in the early church, in the first century. What do we make of this? Have miracles ceased? Well, the first thing to say is Psalm 115.3, which says, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. So can God still do miracles today? Duh. (laughs) He's God. Yes, he's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He can make a miracle happen anywhere at any time, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants. He could dump miracles upon us tomorrow, and that's his prerogative. (laughs) He's God. But here's the question. If we aren't seeing miracles, is something wrong with us? If you haven't seen a miracle in your life, Does that mean you're missing out on something that Christianity is supposed to be offering you? These are important questions. I don't know if you grew up in a church, but there are churches that emphasize uh, miraculous miracles. 
and, and gifts and things like this. So what do we make of it? Well, I want to just point out a couple things. And one is that to the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 2.4, when he says, God bore witness by signs and wonders, this is a past tense verb. So he, he's not, he could have said, God is bearing witness to you with signs and miracles. But most people think the book of Hebrews is written right before the year 70 AD or so. Uh, and according to him, these miracles are something that happened. They happened when Jesus was here. They happened with the early apostles and they verified the message. It's possible that some of them had witnessed real miracles. I mean, he he says it's, it's a matter of fact that these happened. No one is doubting that they happened. But look at where the emphasis falls. The emphasis does not fall on the miracles. It does not say, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to miracles lest we lose them. (laughs) What it says is we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that the message is the miracle. The gospel is a miracle. There is no greater miracle than the gospel. You're not lacking if you haven't seen a miracle in your life. If you have heard the gospel, you know it is a miracle and you know it's greater than all the miracles. And here's how you know it. What miracle would you trade the gospel for? Is there any miracle in the Bible that you would swap it for? You wouldn't swap it to get your sight. You wouldn't swap it to be healed of your sciatica. You wouldn't swap it even to bring someone back from the dead that you love for just a little while longer because you know that the gospel is greater. It is the ultimate miracle. The entire purpose of all the fantastic things that Jesus and prophets and apostles do is to testify about this message, to authenticate it and to illustrate it. And I think this is interesting. In the first century, the, uh, the message is authenticated by the miracles. Even Jesus says during his earthly ministry, he says, if you don't believe what I'm saying, at least believe because of the works that I'm doing. Jesus is begging people, look at what I'm doing. It verifies the message. But today in the 21st century, it's the message that authenticates the miracles. <laughs> what I mean is, why do you believe in the miracles of the Bible? If you haven't seen anything like that in your life, why do you believe them? I believe them. I believe a Red Sea was parted. I believe that a donkey was speaking. I I believe that Jesus healed the blind and the deaf and the lame and the dumb and the lepers. And the reason I believe it is because of the gospel. The gospel is so miraculous. It changes the way I perceive reality. The gospel is the ultimate miracle. The message authenticates the miracles. And here's one reason I think the gospel is miraculous. It it is one of the greatest evidences for Jesus. The message is, the gospel is. And here's what I mean. We would not have a gospel. We would not have this message without Jesus rising from the dead. Because when Jesus dies, the party's over for the disciples. If Jesus was a politician, if he was running a campaign, It ends when he's crucified naked on a Roman cross. The disciples go home. Everyone flees. Everyone is scared. There is no message. (laughs) There is no gospel until Jesus rises from the dead and he goes to the disciples and he gives them the gospel. And he says, he opens their, their minds to understand the scriptures. He explains to them the significance of his death and he commissions them to go out and to share this. The What I'm trying to get you to see is that the gospel itself, this idea, it would take a Jesus to invent Jesus. (laughs) Like 
Here's an example. If 2,000 years from now, people were questioning if Albert Einstein existed, and I don't know much about Albert Einstein, but I do know that he said E equals MC squared. And I don't know what that means, but it means something. And smart people know what it means, and it's been vetted or something like that. At least I hope I'm still current. But anyway, if someone said Einstein didn't really exist, the, the proof that Einstein existed are his ideas. E equals MC squared. It would take an Einstein or someone greater than an Einstein to invent Einstein. Does that make sense? Or William Shakespeare, it, it works the same way. This is the truth of the gospel. If Jesus didn't exist, we wouldn't have the message. It's a heavenly message. It's such a great message. It's as good as miracles. It's better than miracles. The most compelling evidence for our faith in Christ. It's not archeological, it's not scientific or philosophical or historical. It's the gospel, which Romans says is the power of God for salvation. So that's the first point. The message itself is a miracle and we must be careful that we don't drift away from this message. The second point, the danger is drifting. Not only do we have in Hebrews our first exhortation, which is, you know, pay much closer attention, and exhortation is kind of like a positive uh, command. You know, it's like, I exhort you to do this. I really strongly encourage you. But we also have not only exhortation in this passage, but warning. And uh, there are six main warnings in the book of Hebrews. And the first one is right here in verse three. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? A warning, how shall we escape? Why is he saying it like this? Well, if you look at verse two, Here's what he says. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and he's talking about the law in the Old Testament, which is a good thing. The law was God's gracious gift to his people. It was not oppressive. It's only oppressive because people are bad. It's actually a good thing. Read the Psalms. The law is wonderful. It's pure. It's holy. It's good. It's reliable. And the law had claims on people's lives. And that's why he says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. If you, if you neglected the law, which came as a message from the angels, there was a punishment for that, right? Because the law had a claim on your life. Well, the gospel makes claims on your life. He says, if you were punished for neglecting the message that angels brought, then what do you think will happen if you neglect the message that Jesus has brought? It's such a great salvation it's so great that the punishment is worse if you reject Jesus than if you reject Moses. Look at what he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire. Listen to this. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. One of the challenges these Christians faced, they were Jewish converts to Christianity, was that Christianity was getting to be painful because the, the Jewish people were some of the, the fiercest persecutors of the early church. And throughout this letter, what the author, the writer is doing of Hebrews is he's trying to show them Jesus is better 
than your Jewishness. Your, your, that religion is, is outdated now that Christ has come. Christ is superior. Jesus is greater. And one of the key themes is don't fall away. Don't go to something easier. Don't break the new covenant. Your soul depends on it. And what's interesting in our text is it tells us how this happens. How could people reject such a great covenant? It says it in verse one, lest we drift away from it. We drift away. So one commentator says, he's not thinking of a deliberate refusal to heed, but almost a helpless slipping away, literally to flow past like driftwood in a river. Another commentator says, this verb to drift away is used in other contexts to describe a boat which, which drifts away aimlessly so it misses the landing point. It's also used of a ring which slips off of a finger or water which leaks away from a faulty jar. You don't just go from loving Jesus and cherishing the gospel and, and being vibrant in your faith to rejecting him outright and, and being uh, neglectful of this message. It's a slow fade. It's a gradual drift. This past Thursday morning, uh, the men and I are going uh, on Thursday mornings through a book called The Screwtape Letters, which was written by C.S. Lewis. And it's kind of an imaginative take on spiritual warfare. And the premise of the book is there's a senior uh, devil named uh, Screwtape who is giving advice to a junior devil. And in this one letter we just read this past week, he's writing to him saying, all of you younger demons, you want to get your patients to do some grand sin, some, something dramatic like murder, adultery, or something crazy like that. But he says, smaller sins are more effective. This is what Screwtape writes. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. I'm bringing this up to you. I think the text is demanding that I bring it up to you because we don't live in a neutral world. The natural drift of your heart, the natural drift of the world around us is away from God. It's away from the message. It might even be towards like a hyper biblicism or something. These are people in this church who love the Bible. All of the illustrations in the book of Hebrews are Old Testament illustrations, not Pixar movies or Nacho Libre, the things that we love. They love the Bible. And, and even though they love the Bible, they're drifting away from the message. And so I have to ask you, and I have to ask myself, Jesus says, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. How are we doing? Do you love God with your mind? Do you think about the things of God? Are you curious to learn more? Do you grow in your theology? Do you, do you long to know more and understand God better? Do you search the scriptures? And do you love God with your heart? Do you feel affections towards God at all? Does the gospel move you to tears? Does it fill you with joy? When you feel anger or fear or anxiety, are you quick to remember that you have a treasure in the gospel that is so much greater? And do you love God with your strength? 
with the, the first fruits of your energy and not the leftovers? Are you building your kingdom or his kingdom? Do you love your family? Do you do your day job knowing that you're serving Christ and not your boss? And do you make time with God a priority? And are you tired of me asking these questions? Uh, because it's hard because we all know that we have drifted. We all know that we have drifted some and some of us more than others, but we're all in the same boat, literally drifting. And that brings up the question, what do we do? What do we do when we identify we are drifting? And that brings us to our final point, the pioneers pursuing. Whenever you drift, there's only one way to answer the question, if I'm drifting, uh, drifting and how far have I drifted? And that is to find your point of reference. Where did you begin? What is the point of reference that will tell you if you've drifted and how far you've drifted? And this text, loud and clear, is shouting, here's the point of reference. Look at verse nine. It says this, but we see him, him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And then one of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The founder of their salvation. What does that word mean? In Greek, that word for founder means something like originator, uh, the first in a series with people coming behind. Founder is a fine word. I like the King James word. Uh, captain, which I think is cool. Leader is another good translation, but actually most modern English Bibles uh, translations other than the ESV use the word pioneer. And I think that's probably the best word, the pioneer of our salvation. A pioneer does two things, right? A pioneer goes in front of other people, but a pioneer also goes where other people have not gone. Like that is the point of being a pioneer. You go somewhere that others have not gone before and you go before them and you make a way for them to come. So in what sense is Jesus our pioneer? And this is where the author of Hebrews goes back to the angels. In verse five, he says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And we're like, what are you talking about? Well, what he's talking about is the, the world to come is the kingdom of heaven. It's the new age that God will usher in, the new heavens and the new earth. And he's saying, it's not to angels that that will be subjected. It's not angels who will be ruling in the new heavens and the new earth. Who is it? Verse six, he says, it has been testified somewhere, which is the best way to memorize scripture in my opinion. It is written you know, somewhere. And he quotes Psalm eight. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, but you've crowned him with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. Psalm eight in the Old Testament is a Psalm celebrating the dignity of humanity. That, that God who made this massive universe still cares about us, tiny little ant-sized us. So much dignity we have that we are designed to rule over angels. Paul writes in one place, do you not know that we are to judge the angels? We will be more glorious than the angels. But the problem is that's not working, is it? <laughs> we aren't more glorious than the angels. We know that we are lower than them. It feels like that is so true, but that is where we see a pun. You see the son of man in Psalm 8, it can mean an average Joe, just like you or me, like you're a son of a, a man as we all are, or 
It can be a title. It's a title in Daniel chapter seven about the ancient of days who comes on the clouds of heaven. It's Jesus's favorite name for himself. Jesus is the son of man. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's making a pun, which is why pastors make them all the time because we have precedent, right? But he's saying the son of man is Jesus. He's the son of man of Psalm 8. Jesus is the one who has pioneered our destiny. The true future, the original purpose of humanity is achieved by Jesus. Everything is in subjection to him and he left nothing outside of his control. That's how Jesus is our pioneer. But he also, as Scott said earlier, he, he, he brings many sons to glory, sons and daughters. He, he brings us to glory. And this, this is the final thing I want you to see as we think about Jesus as our pioneer. He's not only a pioneer that like blazed a trail and then is sitting at the end of it, waiting for us to catch up. But I'm saying he's a pioneer who's pursuing us. He's the pioneer that not only blazed the trail, but he's, he's, he's coming behind us and he's pushing us along, hurting us like cats because he loves us. He wants to be identified with us. It says in verse 11, that is why, so beautiful, listen to this. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. In all three of these quotations, you, you can imagine Jesus is, is the I, Jesus says, I will sing your praise. He says, I will put my trust in him. Jesus associates with us that even when he was on earth, Jesus had to live a life of faith. He had to put his trust in God. And then behold, I and the children that God has given me. In context, Isaiah is, is saying that in Isaiah chapter eight, and he's talking about himself and his children. And they're this, this faithful remnant in the, in the middle of a land that's about to face judgment. What Jesus is saying, I and the children God has given me. We're his band of brothers. Jesus wants to be associated with us. He's eager to be named with us. And in verse 12, when it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers, that's a quote from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, you need to know is uh, one of the most interesting and messianic Old Testament Psalms. It starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the, it's the Psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. And, and the Psalm is really brutal. It's, it's an ag agonizing, uh, you know, uh, graphic depiction of crucifixion uh, that was written a thousand years before Christ was crucified. But it starts so, so gruesome, but yet it ends in triumph. The end of Psalm 22 is this, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship. So the question is, well, how does Psalm 22 go from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to all the ends of the earth shall worship and all the families of the nations. And if you read Psalm 22, the verse where it all changes, the hinge in that, that short Psalm is actually verse 22, Psalm 22, verse 22, which is, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And we're back to the message, the miraculous message of Jesus coming to his disciples, coming to us and telling us this wonderful message. And as we close, I want you to think about this. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This means that if you are in Christ, then Jesus is not ashamed of you. Jesus is proud of you. This means that Jesus not only loves you, but he likes you. 
It means he's moving toward you. It means he's eager to share the riches of his glory with you. He not only wants to save your soul, he wants to save your body. He wants to save your personality. He wants to save all of you. And he doesn't just want you to save you into heaven to rack up the scorecard, but he wants to live a life with you in, in heaven, in paradise. And he wants you to experience the fullest joy imaginable. And one day when we are there, we will have a joy so deep you can never touch the bottom of it. And that's the day that I think we will say, this is such a great salvation. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you uh, for such a great salvation uh, that you bring to us uh, through Jesus, a message too important for the mouths of angels. And God, we thank you that uh, you don't blush when you call us your children but you have joy and you have pride, the good kind. And it's all because of Christ and what he's done, not what we have done. And so I pray for myself, God, I pray for this church that you would help us uh, to pay very, very close attention to this message, lest we drift away from it. Could New Valley be uh, one church of many in this area? And we pray that there would be many that love this message and cling to it closely. By the power of your spirit, we ask it in Christ's name, amen.